0: One and all, 2023 Kirk here, welcoming you to another classic episode of Strong Songs, a 2020 episode that I still regularly get messages about. It's my analysis of Prince's 1986 hit song, Kiss. As I'm sure you probably know, I'm currently on break. I'm working on some creative projects, charting out the exciting next steps for Strong Songs, planning some new endeavors, and really just fighting off the old self-employed creator burnout, which the longer I do this show, the more I come to understand that that is a real thing. It's been cool, re- running these old episodes from the past few years, it's helped me realize that there are actually a lot of you out there who haven't heard every episode of the show, which of course is true, but it's easy to forget that when you're neck deep in producing the show every week, like I've heard every episode of the show multiple times, but of course I have kind of a unique perspective on strong songs. So I'm actually excited to go back to this episode on Prince's Kiss, since I know now that a lot of you haven't heard it. That song was revolutionary for its dark simplicity and for its embrace of the blues, one of the oldest. American Song Forms. And I find myself referencing the explanation of the blues in this episode quite a bit as I make this show just on an ongoing basis because the blues comes up so often. Um, it's, It's nice to know what it is. And I think I explained it pretty well in this episode. So the episode is as it was when it ran three years ago, which means there'll be some things like email addresses, etc., that are outdated now. I also talk at the beginning of the episode about how I've been practicing guitar. And I'm happy to say that in the years since this episode aired, I've been taking regular guitar lessons really for the past six or eight months. And I have improved a lot in that time compared with where I was at when I made this episode. Turns out lessons are a very good way to get better at a musical instrument. So that's enough from me. As always, if you want to support the creation of Strong Songs, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash strong songs. The show is totally supported by listeners. That's it. Just me and you, no sponsors, no ads or anything. And I really appreciate all of my patrons. And of course, you can also send in a one-time donation if you'd like. There is a link down in the show notes, along with links to newsletter, merch store, social media, all of that good stuff. Okay. I hope you're all taking care out there and that you all enjoy this episode on Prince's Kiss. In the recording studio, reverb is used to refer to the sound of the space that an instrument or a musical sound is in. You can create natural reverb by, say, going and recording in the middle of a canyon, or you can simulate reverb using a digital or analog effect. A signal with no reverb is called a dry signal, and when there's a ton of reverb, sometimes they call it drenched. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about reverb-drenched recordings, totally dry recordings, and recordings that fall somewhere in between. We've got an almost entirely dry recording to talk about on this episode, and I'm very excited to get into it, so find a comfortable place to sit, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. Reverb is a really important part of making a record, or at least it usually is, but it can be a hard thing to get your head around, and if you're just getting into audio production, it's very easy to go astray. Reverb can make a lot of instruments sound better, especially vocals. I know a lot of vocalists who, when they record in the studio, like to have a little bit of reverb in the cans with them just so that they have the feel of the room and they're not singing in a totally dry space. But it is very easy to go overboard with reverb. And if you've got a ton of reverb on everything, and and more particularly, if you have a bunch of different kinds of reverb on everything, it can sort of just make your mix muddy and make everything sound kind of indistinct. It's very easy to go overboard with reverb, and I know that because I am someone who is done it plenty of times. So, welcome back to the show. I'm glad that you're all here. I hope you enjoyed the most recent Q&A episode, and as always, you can send me questions for future Q&A episodes at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Also, I hope some of you downloaded the outro music to try your own outro solos. I realized that I didn't initially put a chart on that, but there is now a chart linked in the SoundCloud file, and you can just download that right through SoundCloud if you want to try playing along. And yeah, if you do wind up making a recording um, playing an outro solo, I would love to hear it so feel free to send it to me Uh, listeners at strongsongspodcast.com is fine for that as well I have been practicing a lot of guitar lately. I mentioned on the Q&A episode that I tend to kind of spend larger blocks of time, maybe a month or two, on each of the instruments that I'm trying to learn, you know, non-saxophone instruments basically, and it's been guitar for me lately, and that's been really cool. And I've actually been making some pretty good progress. I'm mostly working through Jody Fisher's Jazz Guitar book, which is this kind of omnibus overview of everything related to jazz guitar. You could probably spend a lifetime working through this book. But it's been cool working through it, and it's reminded me of the difference between practicing and playing. Guitar is not a familiar instrument to me, only because I first learned piano and then I learned saxophone, and I tend to think of things in terms of like the treble clef and written music, and specifically instruments where there's one way to play a given note. There's just like one middle C on the piano. That's the only one. And guitar is just different because there are multiple versions of every note on the instrument, and there are a lot of different ways you could theoretically play quite a few things. So it requires a very different headspace and a sort of different conception to learn notes. I've just been doing triad stuff, just triads all over the fretboard and learning how to play triads and in various inversions, and it is tough. I mean, I'm just playing like a C major triad and then a C first inversion, you know, triad up and down the fretboard, starting on, you know, every different possible string, but that takes me a long time to get through just because it requires such a different kind of thinking. A listener recently wrote in, he was talking about practicing jazz piano and he was like, some of this harmony stuff kind of makes my brain hurt. And I get that feeling too, when I'm looking at the fretboard and just trying to remember, okay, even, you know, like doing pentatonics, okay, wait, which form of the pentatonic is this? And like, where do my fingers have to go? And you know, which one gets three frets and which one gets two frets? And when my brain hurts, or at least it kind of itches, that's when I know that I'm really practicing. I'm not just playing guitar. I'm not just going over stuff that I already know, noodling around, just enjoying feeling more comfortable with the instrument. I'm in an uncomfortable place, and it's kind of really just I have to force my brain to do new things. The older I get and the more proficient I get on various instruments, the more I'll find myself not really practicing and spending more time just kind of playing, you know, keeping my chops up, doing some basic exercises that I can already play, but not doing the thing that requires me to push my brain to do something new, And that is actually the stuff like that's what I really want to be doing. And every time I do it, especially for a few days in a row, and really work on something new, I find that I'm really growing and it's a much more rewarding feeling. As I've gotten older, I've definitely found that it's harder for me to learn new things. And it feels a little bit like my brain has this kind of calcified coating on it. And I just you just need to kind of squeeze it and crack that calcification off. And forcing yourself to practice and really drill down and learn something new is a good way to do that that. And it's so satisfying. So that is my challenge to all of you out there. I know a lot of you are practicing instruments, learning new instruments. And when you're playing those instruments, ask yourself, am I practicing or am I just playing? And there's nothing wrong with just playing. If you want to just play some music, that can be a wonderful thing to do. But if you really want to make progress and you want to make it so that the next time you're just playing, you have a whole lot more at your disposal, you got to put in the time to practice too. And while it can be harder work, it's worth it in the end. So Try to practice, not just play. Okay, up front, a couple of things. First of all, you can find Strong Songs on Twitter at Strong Songs. You can find me on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton and on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton. Thank you so much to all of my Patreon patrons. We've had a bunch of people sign up lately, and that has been really cool. It's not just that you're all making it possible for me to make the show. You're also making it possible for me to, like, believe in a future where Strong Songs is, like, my main thing, or at least one of my main, main things that I'm doing. And this is kind of my most reliable source of income And it's because the show isn't owned by anybody else. Like, there's nobody who's going to cancel this show because advertisers pulled out or something. It's just me making it for all of you, and that's it. Those are the only concerned parties. So as long as I want to keep making the show and you all want to keep listening to it, I'll just keep making it. And uh, there's just something very freeing about that, and it means a whole lot to me. So thank you all so much. You can find the names of Half and Whole Note patrons in the show notes, and if you want to know more about how to support me making Strong Songs, head on over to patreon.com slash strong songs. Okay, let's get into this episode, Strong Song. This is one that I've been excited to talk about for a very long time from an artist that I have huge admiration for and has been very widely requested by a lot of you, and I'm very excited to finally get into it. It is also one of the most minimalist songs we've talked about on this show, which will be a fun challenge for me, and I think there's a lot for us to get into in the way that this was recorded. So, what song am I talking about? What mega 80s hit could we possibly be about to dissect? Well, this is a song that makes its identity known from the very beginning, so let's just start at the top.
1: Uh, what? Uh, hmm. Uh,
0: uh, That's right, it's time uh, for Strong Songs to Talk About Prince. Uh, <laughs> Yes, on this episode we are going to be talking about Prince's exceedingly minimalist and exceedingly funky hit, KISS. You don't have to be you a song that in 1986 put Prince back on top of the pop world after his record label was actually not so sure that a song so stripped down could be a success. This didn't just not sound like songs that were on the radio in 1986, it also doesn't even sound very much like the other songs that are on the album it was released on, Prince's 1986 album,
1: Parade. It didn't
0: sound like anything else, but it definitely sounded like Prince, and it also sounded really good. So I have been looking forward to talking about Prince on Strong Songs for a very long time. And, you know, there's a lot of different Prince songs that a guy could talk about on a podcast if he made a podcast about music. Prince was on all the time when I was growing up. When Dove's Cry was one of my favorite songs when I was a kid. I didn't see Purple Rain until later, but Purple Rain is a classic. Let's Go Crazy, 1999. There are so many great Prince songs. Any one of them is strong enough to be featured on Strong Songs. But when it came down to it... Kiss is such an unusual song. It's so interesting in so many ways that I couldn't turn down the opportunity to talk about it on this show. So, vital stats up front, KISS was the hit single off of Prince's 1986 album Parade, which he released with The Revolution, his band. Though KISS is pretty different, as I said, it sounds pretty different than the rest of the record. That's a cool record. It's a soundtrack album from the 1986 film Under the Cherry Moon, which I have not seen and I gather isn't really that great, but it's also just a cool Prince record on its own. The story of KISS's creation is actually a little bit different than most of the other songs on that album. So, KISS was produced by a producer named Dave. David Z, who is a renowned producer who worked with Prince, uh, among many other acts, and my understanding, at least of the creation of this track, is based on a Sound on Sound interview that Richard Buskin did with David Z, where he talks in depth about the creation of this song. It's a really cool interview, and I will link it in the show notes worth checking out, just because it's a lot of neat behind the scenes for sort of how this song in particular got made. So David Z is a producer. Prince was also getting into production when this song was created, and Prince was definitely, like, a multi-instrumental he played a bunch of different instruments of course he's an amazing singer and a great uh, guitar player but his thing was that he could play all the instruments on a track he could cut an album doing every single part which of course there's a long tradition of people doing that and now you have modern artists like i don't know elliot smith d'angelo jacob collier all these people who can play a whole ton of instruments really really well and make these self-contained amazing records on their own Now, Prince had actually originally written Kiss for a band he was producing called Maserati, and he wrote the song and gave it to them to record, and David Z was producing it and came up with a lot of the sounds that you hear on the final version. That drum machine, the way that they mix the drums, the backup vocals, a lot of the kind of overall vibe of the song was there, but it was a little bit more traditional. The singer was taking it down the octave and singing it not up in his super high falsetto the way that Prince sings it, and of course, Prince wasn't on the record. He wasn't playing guitar, and he wasn't singing. Now, Maserati never published this song, but you can listen to the outtake online, so this is what Maserati's version, the original version of this song, sounded like.
1: You don't have to be rich to be my girl. You don't have to be cool to rule my world. Ain't no particular sign I'm more compatible with. I just want your extra time and your
0: So it's very different, as I'm sure you can hear if you're at all familiar with KISS. We'll talk a little bit about some of the specifics later once I've kind of broken down what's in KISS. But the remarkable thing about KISS isn't actually what's in it. It's what's not in it, what's not in the final version. Most notably, you can hear Brown Mark there, that's the bass player from Maserati, playing a bass line over KISS, which KISS doesn't have a bass part at all. And it's remarkable in that respect. There aren't a lot of Funk tunes in particular that don't have a bass part. I mean, bass is a really foundational part of funk, but there's no bass part in the Prince finished version of Kiss. I mean, listen for the bass in the Maserati version. You
1: don't have to be
0: And now listen to the Prince version, and just pay attention to what's the same and what's not the same, and in particular, notice how there's just no bass. So there are a lot of different versions of this story of sort of how Prince reclaimed this song, but that's what happened. Prince heard the Maserati version and kind of realized that he liked the song more than he thought he did, and apparently just they went out and then he was in the studio by himself and he just screwed around with it and re-recorded the whole thing himself adding a guitar track and adding a vocal track and was like, nah, I'm taking this song back, it's mine now, sorry. And then the rest was history. Of course, Prince tragically died in 2016. We can no longer ask him for more details about the writing of this song so the story is just going to have to live in all the other people who were there fortunately the other people who were there have talked quite a bit about the creation of this song One other fun thing that David Z shares is that when they played this single for the Warner Brothers people at the label, they were apparently extremely unhappy about it or very nervous. They didn't understand what it was. The comment that he recalls getting from a Warner Brothers A&R guy was that they just thought the song was terrible. There was no reverb. There was kind of nothing in it. They thought it sounded like a demo and they were really freaked out about it. But Prince had the clout to just make them release it. They released it, it became a number one hit, it won a Grammy, it was a massive, like, revolutionary song that kind of everyone started trying to imitate after that, which goes to show when a genius-like Prince wants to release a song, maybe just let them release the song and see what happens. So I do think it's really interesting to know that backstory of this song when you're getting into a sort of detailed breakdown of what's going on, and only because you can hear a lot of the existing tracks in that original Maserati version. That sort of marimba sound is in there, the basic groove is in there. There, the kick drum, that gated snare, the hi-hat with the delay, it's all kind of there. The backup vocals are even the Maserati backup vocals that come in behind Prince, he just re-recorded the lead part and kind of changed its relation to the backup vocals by taking it up the octave and singing it in his falsetto. So we're gonna build this thing up from the ground, but it's important to remember that this song was actually initially a deconstruction of a much more fleshed out song. So we are rebuilding a deconstruction. All right, let's take it from the top. And Prince's version of Kiss starts with something that he added to the Maserati version, it's guitar and it's vocals. So it's just the things that Prince added. And while it's a new idea from Prince, it's really just a quote of a very established and well-known artist. I love the way he begins that song. I love that. Uh, Just, it's so kind of guttural and almost desperate. It has a really great energy. Uh. But that kind of guitar riff is not something that Prince came up with. That was a pretty clear tribute to none other than the godfather of soul.
1: Papa's got a friend.
0: Yes, like so many things in modern music, the guitar riff from Kiss is really just a strong quote of James Brown, and more specifically, a strong quote of Jimmy Nolan's guitar riff from Papa's Got a Brand New Bag by James Brown. And I just want to take the opportunity to point out that a lot of the members of James Brown's band, which was called the JBs, they don't really get enough credit for how many sounds and grooves and riffs they invented that then became just like a part of the fabric of music. In particular, his drummers, guys like Melvin Parker, Jabbo Starks, Clyde Stubblefield—those were all legends. Who, because the JBs were this kind of like anonymous organization, and James Brown was at the front, and then all the guys were like in suits and they sort of blended into the background. For a long time, they didn't get their due, even though they created so many of the grooves that carry on today. Like, for example, okay, listen to "I Got the Feeling" by James Brown. This is Clyde Stubblefield on drums, and this fatback groove is in a thousand songs, and he played it kind of anonymously at the time. Uh
1: uh I got the feeling, baby, baby, I got the feeling,
0: you don't know. Like, that groove just kills, man. What a drum part. Stubblefield's drumming in that tune is just as essential as James Brown's singing, but of course, it'll always be thought of as a James Brown song. That's also true of Jimmy Nolan, who played guitar in the JBs, and he played that legendary guitar break on Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. (laughs) The Prince would go on to open kiss with and then quote liberally throughout the song. So that kind of thing, I think you'll start noticing more and more of the more closely you listen to music and the more you go back and kind of really pay attention to who's playing what. And that's a crucial part of understanding the history of American music, which is such a kind of passed on tradition people will play a riff and then a generation later somebody else will take that riff and repurpose it and once you start to see the music in its grand tapestry you start to understand the sort of powerful cultural force that music can represent it's really really cool but okay enough of that big picture stuff let's get into the nitty-gritty and let's break down this groove because Kiss has a groove that isn't much like any other song Alright, let's start where else but with the drum groove, specifically the thump, the pop, and the sizzle that David Z put together on a drum machine known as the Lindrum, which is very hard to find now, but which, like a lot of drum machines from the 1980s, has a very distinct sound to it and was something that Prince used on a lot of his recordings. And I think that David Z found some really cool sounds, uh, using the Lindrum on Kiss. So here on Strong Songs, when we talk about a groove, we tend to talk about thump, pop, and sizzle because on most pop recordings, there is always some element of thump, some element of pop, and some element of sizzle tying it all together. And those three elements uh, make a groove. Now the groove on KISS is actually very simple. It's just a kick drum, a snare drum, and a hi-hat, which are kind of the three most standard uh, instruments used to create a thump, a pop, and a sizzle in modern music, and just to recap really quickly the thump kind of goes on the bottom that's usually a kick drum or something down low that gives you a nice thump kind of a downbeat the pop is usually offset on an an upbeat or on a two and a four um, after the thump and the sizzle is some kind of a symbol some kind of a more consistent higher frequency sound that ties the thump and the pop together and kind of acts as something to fill in the space in between the two so the sizzle is usually a more subdivided pattern could be a tambourine could be a shaker could be a tambourine and a shaker and a hi-hat could be a ride cymbal could be a lot of different things just like the thump could also be a bunch of feet on the floor and the pop could be a bunch of people clapping their hands now david z using the lindrum used a kick a snare and a hi-hat to make the groove for kiss but it doesn't really sound as straightforward as that if i play the groove from kiss on a drum set with no processing and no effects it would sound pretty much like this So that's kind of boring, right? I mean, it's getting the job done, but it's not that interesting. Listen again to the very beginning of the groove from KISS and try to hear what's going on. Like, what are you hearing? Don't identify, you know, the specific effect you're hearing, unless you can, unless you know what it is that you're hearing and then just sort of notice that. But just try to hear what's going on with the thump, what's going on with the pop, what's going on with the sizzle. All right, ears on, see what you hear. Pretty cool, right? So what's happening is defined by space. And I really want to underline that because so much of KISS is defined by space. And there's a lot of cool use of space going on with this drum groove. So let's start with the thump. The kick drum, and remember, I'm using a different sound, so it's going to sound a little bit different. But the kick drum is basically just doing this. But on the finished recording, what happens is this pretty cool thing where the kick drum hits and then it sort of disperses outward to the left and right. And it's actually the fattest sound in this whole recording. Everything else is actually very small and controlled and high frequency. The kick drum hits in the low frequency and then it just spreads outward. And that is through, I'm pretty sure, the use of reverb. Now, you think of reverb, like I said in the beginning, as something that's used to kind of simulate cavernous spaces, something with a lot of reverb on it, you think of, oh, it sounds like they're playing in a big open gymnasium or something. But reverb doesn't have to sound like that. It can actually be used super creatively. And I'm pretty sure that what I'm hearing on this is that Dave Z is using reverb very creatively on that kick drum. What he's doing is he's causing it to quickly spread outward to the left and the right. And then I think he's putting what's called a noise gate on the kick drum so that when the reverb's volume has deteriorated to a certain degree, the noise gate kicks in and completely chops off the signal, causing a really harsh cutoff. So like I said, I'm not gonna spend too much time trying to really accurately recreate this sound, but I am gonna do just sort of an approximation of it, so don't judge me too harshly that this won't sound exactly the same. But if I put a big reverb on the kick drum, it sounds like this. So you can hear the sound go outward to the left and right after the initial moment of impact, but it's ringing out a lot longer than it does on KISS, which just gives it a kind of bigger, broader, more reverberant sound. So, noise gate... You can think of a noise gate basically like a dam. It kind of blocks off the sound unless you pass a certain threshold. So you set a decibel threshold, and if the signal goes above that threshold, the gate opens up and lets the sound through. It has a lot of sort of non-creative utility uses in the studio. You can just use it to kind of guarantee silence on certain tracks and to eliminate low level noise. But it can also be used artistically, and a lot of people are getting creative with gating drums in the 1980s. So if I put a gate in the signal chain on that kick drum right after the reverb, It's going to cut off the reverb once the reverb decays to a certain point, and it'll be a super hard cutoff. Let's see what that sounds like. Alright, not bad. Now it lacks the tonal characteristics of the original, and those tonal characteristics are actually really important, like those are a crucial part of the song. But that's the sort of idea, um, just to kind of convey to you what they're doing. So let's look at the pop now, let's look at the snare drum. Now I'm using a sample of an acoustic snare drum, and this electronic snare that they've got on that lindrum sounds kind of different, but I think I can still kind of get across what they're doing. So, the Lindrum snare is also being gated. The primary thing that's happening with the snare drum is a super hard gate. So normally if you hit a drum, it rings out. That's actually true of electronic drums too. Electronic drums have a decay on the note, is what it's called. The note just rings out for a certain amount of time. As it decays, it gets quieter and quieter, and if you put a pretty harsh gate on a drum, that means that pretty early on in the decay, the gate will just kick in like a brick wall and just totally stop the sound. So I'm going to put a super hardcore gate on that snare drum sound, and let's see what that sounds like. So a noise gate is a reductive tool. It removes sound and it adds total silence, which makes it really fitting for this song because the drums are so gated. There's just more silence in every kind of moment of this song because the snare hits, but then it gets out of the way and it's very, very quiet. Let's hear the thump and the pop together in my little version of this with the kick drum and the snare. Alright, that's thump and pop sorted. Let's get that sizzle in there. So, like I said, the hi-hat pattern, very, very simple. Um, the actual hi-hat pattern that is being played. And what's being used here, what David Z is doing to make this sound cool, is he is using uh, Delay. So he describes the delay process a little bit in that Sound on Sound article. It sounds like he was running the delay into itself or something like that. I'm not going to do anything that crazy. But what I'm hearing is that at certain times, the hi-hat has a 16th note delay going over to the right channel. At other times, it actually stays put over in the left channel. And that, I think, is due to the way that he's routed it up. But you can hear the delay regardless, which makes it sound a little bit like it's doubling up. Kind of like that. But what's happening is the delay is kicking on and off. He's basically bypassing the delay and then turning it on um, for various parts of the measure. And that gives it a distinct groove. So this is what the hi-hat sounds like straight up with no delay. All right. So now let's turn the delay on, but just for certain parts of the measure. So you'll hear whenever I turn it on, suddenly the hi-hat starts doubling up and popping over to the left. So you hear that, right? It's pretty cool. It's a little bit different than just if the hi-hat were doubling up, because things like that open hi-hat kind of jumps from left to right, and you'll hear that when we go back to the main recording. So, I'm not David Z. am not really trying to be, but I do think that with just those tricks, I've kind of turned that basic drum groove, which sounded like this, to something that sounds a lot more distinctive and a lot more like the drum groove from KISS. All right, so with all of that in your ear, I want you to listen to the song from the beginning again and just try to kind of really take in and appreciate all of those little details. The way that the bass drum bounces out to the left and the right and then cuts off. The way that the snare drum hits super hard and then hits that gate. The way that the hi-hat alternates between a delay ping-ponging it between left and right and just being over in the left. And of course, that opening guitar riff that references James Brown. All right, here we go. And that's the groove for KISS, it doesn't really change all that much uh, throughout the rest of the song, but once they get it established, they just stick with it. This song is very happy to take one idea and just use that idea every time. So here at the beginning, it's so stripped down, I mean it's just the kick, the snare, the hi-hat, Prince's vocals, and kind of that keyboard sound that's almost just playing a single note. Now, there's a second keyboard part that layers on top of that a little bit later. It's playing what sounds like a marimba sound, but I don't actually think that it's a marimba. I think it's just a keyboard. And when you put them together, you get this. Now, as long as we're talking about the ways that American music flows from one artist to another, from one generation to another, here's a cool little thing. David Z says that he got the idea for that piano part from a Bo Diddley song. This is actually from the Bo Diddley song Say Man, which is kind of just like a comedy routine, but it has this piano part that actually, when you listen to it, is kind of similar to the keyboard part on Kiss. Check it out.
1: Olivia! What's that?
0: You can hear it in that piano part, especially when you combine the keyboard with the marimba sound. It's right in there. And it's just one more example of the way that all of these things connect to one another and that when you look at music over a long enough period of time, it starts to feel like a story being told by multiple people over multiple generations. And I can't really overstate how radical it was that Prince released a single that sounded like this. Just to put it in context, when it hit number one on the Billboard charts, rounding out the top five were in number two, Manic Monday by The Bangles which sounded like this, which actually fun side note that I learned after I initially published this episode, Prince actually wrote that song. So Manic Monday was written by Prince. He wrote a lot of songs for artists other than himself. He wrote that one under a pseudonym for a different band and then eventually wound up giving it to the Bengals who took it and rearranged it and sort of made it sound like a Bengals song. Then in number three, Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love, which sounded like this. In number four, Falco's Rock Me Amadeus, which sounded like this. And in number five, West End Girls by The Pet Shop Boys, which sounded like this. Songs that, while they're all different from each other, and they're all good songs, they have some commonalities. I mean, there's a lot of big, like, sweep-filter synths going, a lot of big, strong bass lines, complicated grooves, big, thick vocals. And then Prince comes along and releases a song that sounds like this. Don't have to be It's so cool because it's so different, but it's also just so good. I mean, the song rules. It was number one because everybody liked it, and everybody liked it because it grooved so hard. I think of this groove as kind of like Tiny Fury. Everything about this song is small, but furious. It's just like a little, tiny, furious person grooving and hitting it so hard. And it's not loud, but it's so tight rhythmically that you just can't deny it. A big part of that tightness comes down to the vocals, and the vocals are the key to this whole song. As cool as the groove is, Prince's vocals are what make it work. I could spend so much time just going point by point in every single one of his vocal deliveries and talking about why each one is cool, but when you listen to this song all the way through after this episode, which I hope that you will, really pay attention to all the nuances of his vocal performance because it's so much more than just a guy singing in falsetto. So this song is an A, it's pretty much an A blues, and we'll talk about that in a minute because I think that's actually really cool that this song is essentially a blues. But we're in the key of A, and Prince starts this tune, I mean the melody is up on on a high C sharp, which is like very high for any man, but he can go so much higher. Prince had a really huge vocal range and he makes it sound not exactly effortless, but tight. Don't have to be you so he's so high up there and he's singing in this very closed way. You don't have to be beautiful. You know, there's barely any air escaping. It's a tiny, tiny sound, but it requires a ton of focus and very focused air. I mean, I can't do it like him. And he does it throughout this whole song. And it gives it this sense of, of rhythm. I mean, he is being very rhythmic with how he's singing, which is actually not always that easy to do when you're singing so lightly and so high. Really cool. It doesn't sound like anybody else. I mean, no one else has ever really sounded like this. And another thing that he does that's really cool that a lot of great singers do is he uses extra vocal sounds as further sort of rhythmic elements of his singing. So you'll hear him take a breath, or you'll hear him make some sort of guttural utterance in between notes, but he always does it in a way that falls right in the groove. I think he almost couldn't help but do that. It's like Prince is just pure rhythm and pure music at all times. So if he's going to breathe, he's going to breathe in time too. And that really adds to the song because while the notes that he sings are really in time and sound super cool, he also breathes in time and sort of recovers from the high notes in time as well. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So right there when he sings Just Leave It All Up To Me, right after that he goes, and it's kind of this like exhale with a glottal start, and he puts it right in time, so it's actually just kind of a little kicker on the phrase. He does that kind of thing so much throughout this recording. Heck, the very first sound that he makes, back during that James Brown guitar riff, listen to it again and listen a little bit more closely to what he does. He actually does two notes. Listen to how they work rhythmically. Uh. Do you hear that second note? It's kind of a recovery note, and it gives it an extra little bounce because it's right in there rhythmically. It's like one, two, three... Uh It sort of even got harmony. It's like an E and a B. It's right in the pocket. It's right in time. And it sets up that downbeat. So this is yet another example of this song's minimalist approach. Not only is Prince grooving and sounding super good when he's singing, he also is grooving when he's breathing, and the way that he's leaving space and cutting off and then filling that space with little breaths and exhales and glottal sounds is actually enhancing the groove and making the whole thing even more tiny and intimate in that tiny, furious way. All right, let's take it to the five chord.
1: You don't have to be rich to be my girl You don't have to be cool to rule my world Ain't no particular sign I'm no more compatible with I just want your extra time in your
0: kiss So in terms of harmony, Kiss is a very simple song. It only has three chords. It's an A, and the three chords are the one chord, which is A... The four chord, which is D, and the five chord, which is E. All three of those are kind of dominant chords, so it's a one dominant seven, a four dominant seven, and a five dominant seven. Those are probably the three most common chords in American music, and the reason for that is that they're the three chords that make up a blues, which, Turns out, Kiss is a blues. Now, this is something I've talked about before on the show, but I don't want to assume that you've listened to every episode, even though you should. They're all pretty fun. But what is a blues, and what does it mean when I say that Kiss is a blues? Well, if you don't play music, you've definitely heard of the blues, but you probably think of it more as a genre of music. You know, jazz, blues, folk rock that kind of thing you would see a blues section at a record store back when people went to record stores and didn't just stream things online and now i suppose you would see blues as a subcategory on spotify now under that category you would see a lot of blues musicians which is also like you can be kind of known as a blues musician people like bb king and muddy waters and big mama thornton people who were known for singing blues music so it is a genre of music but it's also something more technical than that a song can sound bluesy like it can have a lot of blue notes, it can emphasize the minor third and the flat fifth, it can use the blues scale, which is a type of scale that people use, a kind of modified pentatonic scale, but it can also just be a blues, which is actually a type of song form. Now, a blues can look like a lot of different things. I'm going to give you my very broad definition, which is it's basically a song that starts on the one, then goes to the four, then goes back to the one, then goes to the five, and then the four, and then the one. The most basic blues is typically twelve bars long, four bars of the one chord, two bars of the four chord, two bars of the one chord, a bar of the five, a bar of the four, two bars of the one chord, that comes out to twelve bars and it just repeats over and over and over again. There's no bridge or anything, it's just those twelve bars over and over and over again, and that twelve bar blues is the most basic blues. Every jazz musician learns how to play a 12 bar blues. A million jazz tunes are also blueses. You can actually have a blues that's very beboppy or very funky. It doesn't have to sound like BB King or Muddy Waters. But a lot of blues musicians, like those two singers and a lot of other people, do play songs that are also a blues. So this is yet another musical aspect of KISS that can be traced way, way back to earlier types of American music. Now, you have heard a million blueses in your life, and it wasn't just because you were listening to someone who sounded bluesy, you were listening to the song form of the blues. For example, Chuck Berry's 1958 revolutionary hit, Johnny B. Good" That's a Blues. So just like the rest of these clues is it's just 3 chords. here's what they are one in
1: louisiana coast of new orleans we're back up in the woods
0: among the evergreens four god have made earth and wood and one country
1: bar named johnny be good
0: five And that's just the start of a new chorus, and it just repeats from there those same 12 bars over and over and over again. Now those of you who are listening closely may have noticed that Johnny B. Good did not go from the 5 chord to the 4 chord to the 1, it just went straight to the 1, and that's because there's no one set way to play a blues, like that version I laid out is kind of the most common one, but there's always a little change like that in almost every version. So in 1958, Chuck Berry took the blues and turned it into rock and roll, but he was just another thread, a big thread, in the tapestry. Go back, say, 30 years to 1929, Bessie Smith records the St. Louis blues. That's also a blues. Check it out. I hate see. So in these first four bars, we're kind of staying around the one. Here comes the four, then back to the one, then up to the five, then a turn around back to the one. so Bessie Smith along with a whole lot of other singers sang the blues all through the 1920s and 1930s which then led to Chuck Berry taking the blues and turning it into a more rock and roll style thing Johnny Be Good was in 1958 but if you fast forward seven years from there you want to know what another blues is James Brown's Papa's Got a Brand New Bag we're just on the one chord here and then we go to the four And back to one Here comes the five And the four
1: And one
0: So like I said, there's a world of variations on that basic 12 bar form, but anytime you hear a song that kind of chills on one, especially if it's like a one dominant seven chord, and then you hear it go up to four, you're pretty much listening to a blues of some sort and KISS is definitely a blues. It starts on the one on an A dominant sound. And then it goes up to the four. Chills on the four for a minute, then back to the one. And then it goes up to the five. Then down to the four. Then back to the five. Then down to the four. To the the break. And we're back at the top on that A dominant seventh chord. So they do some cool things on the second time through, but I want to take one second and just highlight what Prince does during that guitar riff. You know, the Jimmy Nolan inspired guitar riff that sets up the second chorus. Um, I really, really dig this. I think you probably heard it, but it kind of is worth taking a moment and really sitting with what he does here. Listen to this. (laughs) I mean, talk about extra vocal sounds. He literally goes right in time right along with the guitar and it's it's it kills he like makes a kissy face sound because he's you know kissing the microphone because the song is called kiss kiss so those backup vocals that come in during the five chord, which essentially feels like the chorus of the song, even though it's a blues and a blues doesn't have a chorus. Um, it kind of feels like the chorus because it's where he sings the refrain, you don't have to be rich to be my girl. Um, during that section, the backup vocals that come in are actually the backup vocals from the Maserati version of this song.
1: You don't have to
0: It sounds so different in their version, but it's actually the same backup tracks. It's just that when Prince sings it up the octave and strips so much out, it completely changes how they sound in context. So one of the big things that makes the Prince version sound so different is the relative positioning of the lead vocal track to the backup vocal track. So on the Maserati version those backup vocal parts are a higher harmony. They're singing harmony above the lead part because the lead singer is singing down the octave. When Prince takes it way up the octave, suddenly the harmony parts are actually lower. They stick out a lot more and you can still hear Prince very clearly but he's up above the backup vocal parts. Which is a just very different relationship for the lead vocal to have with the backup
1: vocal. No-
0: so getting into the second time through, they pick up one other cool sound that's carried over from the Maserati version that I really dig. Listen to the start of the second chorus and see if you can hear it. So you're probably hearing it. It's that marimba sound that I alluded to earlier, the one that combined with the keyboard part sort of recreates that Bo Diddley piano part, playing a little figure kind of sounds like this. And it just flits in and out of the groove uh, through to the end of the song, starting in the second chorus. I also love those backup vocals that come in on the second chorus. They really stick out because of the way Princess stripped the arrangement down. He also does something cool with those backup vocals when they go to the four chord. He's able to basically go non-lyrical and still make it sound like he's singing the lyrics because the backup vocals sing the lyrics as well. They're in the second time through on the four chord. So Prince can kind of just go up super high and like transcend the English language. I
1: want to be your <laughs> Maybe.
0: So they go on pretty much like that up to the five chord. They set up that guitar fill. Prince plays the guitar riff again. He kisses into the mic again. And then it's time for a guitar solo, and Prince gives that guitar solo a perfect setup. Man. Man, So this guitar solo totally kills And it's because it's so restrained Just like the rest of this song It, just like the Prince's vocals It's that tiny fury And Prince is definitely still channeling Jimmy Nolan here Who's kind of chicken scratch style You know, he would really just pick at the strings In that rhythmic way He's just playing three strings up top These three strings on the guitar And he's kind of just strumming really loose with his right hand But because his wrist is just so in there And his time is so locked The groove on it is just ridiculous He also does a lot with muted strings. He's kind of picking at the muted strings, and that to me actually feels like a guitar representation of what he's been doing with his breath and those kind of non-vocal sounds with his voice as well. He's kind of singing and playing guitar in the same restrained way, and I think that's really cool too. There's kind of a unified voice from him in the guitar and the vocals. And remember those were the two things that he really added to this track after taking so much out. Oh, So when they go to the four chord, he starts switching between clean and wah wah sound. Here's the wah, then he goes back to clean, and then wah. <laughs> Oh, man. There's so much in the ending of that guitar solo, too. Check it out. It's just like four down beats, boom, and each one has a different little thing on it. And it's such a killer setup to that refrain with the backup vocals. Listen one more time. Women <laughs> man, this is such a good song. Um, so it's basically like a guitar note and then a kiss and then the vocals and then a snare hit. It's like women bop. bop. Uh, and it's all downbeats, and it's so in there, and I love it so much.
1: Women, not girls, women.
0: a lot of new things are happening here. You've got the backup vocals singing with him on that women, not girls, rule my world. The guitar has now come in playing a steady groove, which feels momentous on a song that has this, you know, stripped down of an instrumentation. For the guitar to be suddenly in on a groove, it really makes the song feel much more involved and very different, even though it's just a single instrument. <laughs> But I also really like that lyric, women, not girls, rule my world. I think it kind of gets to something that I really like about this song lyrically. And it's something that I like about Prince more generally. And I think that it was actually something that was pretty unusual for 1986. And that's that he consistently places himself underneath the women that he's admiring in this song. And given that so much of like pop music culture in the 80s and today kind of infantilizes women, talks about women as girls, his whole thing in this song is literally the explicit lyric, women. Women, not girls, rule my world. And he does use the word girl at other points in the song, but I like this lyric, and I also like the lyric, I just want your extra time and your kiss. You know, rule my world your extra time. There's a sense in the way that he's talking about this, is that he wants a woman who's got stuff going on. He just wants some of her extra time. He just wants her to hang out with him when she's not off doing other things. And I really like that lyric. I like that overall vibe to the song. I think it's it's unusual and cool. Okay, now that Dynasty reference, this may be a little bit more dated. Now it's time for Prince to do his vocal thing. Okay, so yeah, that is ridiculous. That's the climax of the song and also pretty much the very end of the song. He just goes into this unbelievable screech and goes totally wild while the guitar kind of rings out underneath him. It's really, really cool. It's really high. I mean, I can't sing close to that high, but something that I actually really like about those crazy high notes is that right before he sings them, he drops into his chest voice and actually starts really, really low. He sings the lowest note of the entire song before flying up to sing the highest notes. Listen one more time and pay attention for it. Right before he goes into the high notes, he actually drops into his chest voice and then, you know, he kind of goes way down into his pry before jumping up to those screams. Yeah,
1: you don't have to-
0: and that's it there's a little guitar solo that fades out but that's the end of the song they get out just as clean as they got in this is a very tight very short song that reaches its destination and then stops immediately afterward kiss Throughout this episode, I've talked about a lot of different artists who all influenced one another. From Bessie Smith and other blues musicians of the 1920s and 30s who took music rooted in the African-American tradition and turned it into the blues as we know it. I hate to, see the evening sun go down. to Chuck Berry in the nineteen fifties, taking all of the blues singers from the decades before him and turning their music into rock and roll. To Bo Diddley's goofy piano part somehow turning up 30 years later in a prince song.
1: What's that?
0: To James Brown in the 1960s, who along with his brilliant band members took the blues and codified a ton of different ways to feel and express it. To those musicians borrowed ideas from the past while adding licks and riffs of their own, staking out their place in the timeline, their chapter in the story. Now I want to add one other thing. It's not a coincidence that all of the musicians that I just named were black, and they were all playing their part in carrying on and evolving the grand tradition of black American music. I've said before on this show that American music and black American music are essentially the same thing, and this is what I'm talking about. It's all a big, rich tapestry of grooves, riffs, harmony, and dance moves shifting and growing over the decades, providing in the process the soundtrack for a nation. Prince brought together so many different kinds of American music into his music. I really urge you to go listen closely to a ton of Prince stuff and not just the number one hits, get into some of the weird stuff too. And you'll hear everything from jazz to blues to funk, R&B, every style of music came out in Prince's sound. He was kind of this culminating force when he was creating music, but as brilliant as he was... It didn't stop with him. Prince's sounds and styles have been incorporated into the work of countless artists of all skin colors and nationalities, and in fact, one artist that we've covered on Strong Songs has spent the last decade picking up the mantle in a major way. Yeah. I mean, does this groove sound familiar to you?
1: Maybe make me spell it out for ya. All of the feelings that I've got for Kind
0: of feels like it should go to the four
1: chord I can try for you.
0: Yeah, well, what do you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, baby, don't make me spell it out for you. It's like I'm power-
0: Now, most songs don't get sequels, but then again, most songs aren't Prince's Kiss. And if Prince's Kiss has a sequel, it is Janelle Monae's 2018 song, Make Me Feel. I mean, listen to this.
1: There's nothing better
0: this music will never stop growing, it'll never stop changing, and it will never stop being filtered through the lens of exciting new artists in creative new ways. Prince echoed those who came before him, and he will be echoed for decades to come by those who come after. There aren't a whole lot of things that are certain in this world, but that one, you can take to the bank. And that'll do it for my analysis of Prince's Kiss, a killer, extremely stripped down song from one of the greatest musicians and greatest songwriters who ever lived. Thanks so much for listening to this show. I know there's a lot going on. Most people have a whole lot going on in their lives. And it's very cool that any of you would spend some of your free time listening to me talk about music. If you like this show, by all means, tell your friends about it. Spread the word. It's been really cool to see people spreading the word. And that's how this show grows. And it's also totally listener supported. So if you want to help me keep making this show, go to patreon.com slash strong songs. I feel like the bass didn't get enough love on this episode since there is no bass on kiss so this episode's outro solos will be my old buddy sam howard a nashville tennessee based bass player and a really good dude so stick around for sam and i'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song